Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, a founder that um, he actually founded a company that you're all going to recognize, SoFi. Uh, incredible journey and incredible rocket ship. Uh, he's been up to, you know, many more things, you know, after that. And we're going to be talking about the latest business that he's right now involved with. But again, we're going to be talking about really good stuff, you know, things about raising money in the early days, what happens when you raise a lot of money. In his case, I mean, they raised over a billion. Uh, also, you know, we're going to be talking about what is life now, you know, being back with a, with a company that is more at the earlier stages uh, and uh, what are some of those things that, they, that they're dealing with. But again, you know, all the good stuff that we like to hear about building, scaling, financing uh, and all of that. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Daniel Mackling. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, you were born in Cambridge, there in the UK. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Oh, it's great. Uh, I grew up, I was born in Cambridge and then grew up just outside London. Uh, two brothers and sisters and a uh, very happy, happy childhood. And, uh, yeah, my dad worked in the city of London in, in banking. And I was kind of, I don't know why, but I always felt like that was going to be, be my career. So, so that's what I ended up doing after, after university. So obviously you um, definitely did university, you did business, business and economics there. And then from there, you also went into the world of banking, you know, where you were for 12 years. I mean, that sounds like a, like a long time. You know, I would never have thought that you would uh, think about shifting years. But, um, but there, while you were in banking for 12 years, also you got to experience being in London, being in Singapore, you know, that uh, international approach too. So I guess... How do you think that your perspective opened up, you know, being able to see the world from different venues? Uh, and also, what did you learn during those 12 years in banking? Yeah, it was great. I was very lucky. I joined a bank called Standard Chartered Bank, which, although it was a British bank um, and, and on the, the London Stock Exchange, um, it was really international. Most people in the UK had never heard of it. Um, and it was in 70 countries around the world. So I joined because I knew I'd get the opportunity to travel, and that was important to me. And, and like you mentioned, I, I managed to work for a couple of years in Singapore. I managed to work uh, with my then uh, or live with my then very young family in China and got to visit probably more than 20 countries in Asia, Africa and the Middle East. So I learned a lot. I mean, uh, I learned a lot about banking in different places. I, I learned a lot about people in different places. And um, I enjoyed the fact that, that someone was paying me to do that and, and, and letting me stay in fancy hotels around the world and, and give me a very nice lifestyle. So. Yeah, it was great. I met my wife through the bank. Um, 12, 12 really good years and a lot to be thankful for. Now, 12 years, you know, is a, is a lifetime. Eh? So yeah. uh, at what point do you realize, hey, I think that maybe uh, going to an M&A program is, uh, to, to an MBA program is the right step, you know, for me in, 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 at this point in time? Yeah, this is where I've got to give some credit to my wife. She, she encouraged me to, to think about it and I actually did my GMAT while we were living in, in Singapore back in around 2005. And then I got a good job back in London. So I kind of put that to one side. And, and actually, it was the fact that the GMAT was coming up to its five-year expiry. I thought, oh, I don't want to have to go through that again. So if I'm ever going to do this, I need to do it now. 
Um, but by that stage, I was a bit older than the average MBA uh, kind of candidate. I, you know, like I say, I got 11, 12 years experience. But I found this really great program at Stanford. There's only three schools, uh, MIT and uh, London Business School that operate, where it's a full-time program, but it's a one-year program. And um, I convinced the bank uh, to sponsor me to go there. So I thought, you know, in a way, risk-free, go there, have a great year in California uh, with, my, with my family. And then come back to the bank and, and, and you know, be better for that experience. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I, I kind of pushed for that. I'm glad my wife pushed me to do that because then the second half of my career, another 12 years, is, is completely uh, attributable to the fact that I was at Stanford. Like the rest of it would not have happened had I been sitting in Shanghai still working, working for a bank. Now, obviously, Stanford was pivotal. Because there, you know, it gave you a fantastic network that gave you that nice push into the world of entrepreneurship and, and with a bang, you know, because obviously SoFi, you know, is what came out of that. So how did the uh, band, you know, come together for SoFi? How did you guys stumble upon this and, and how did you all come together, you know, and, and united to form the company? Yeah, I, I think um, just on, on Stanford, like obviously the education is great. The classes are great. I think more than anything, though, uh, I was lucky to be in a number of classes where we have entrepreneurs that would come in and talk about their experience. And many of them, some select, selection bias here, but most of them were successful entrepreneurs. And they'd, they'd started something and either sold it or it was a, an ongoing concern. And, and I suddenly realized, well, look, they're smart people, but they're not you know, completely different to me. Uh, and I think it made it much more tangible. I could see that, yeah, maybe maybe I could do this. And it, and it got the you know, the cogs whirring in the brain. Um, and at the same time, we were going through a class that was, I think it was called Evaluating Entrepreneurial Opportunities, which was basically come up with an idea for a company, use your classroom time to, uh, you know, push that idea and, and, and develop that idea. And, and long story short, um, that idea that, that we came up with turned into, into SoFi. So, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for Stanford for and the whole kind of infrastructure and ecosystem there um, enables people to, to think big and come up with ideas, but then to actually make progress on those ideas. So yeah, there were four of us uh, in this class together uh, who became the four co-founders of, of the company uh, six months later. I mean, for you, as you mentioned, you were already uh, quite advanced in your career after 12 years at a bank, you know, taking the leap of faith. And yeah. going into something that is starting from nothing, you know, with children, it sounds like a crazy move, probably for many people. So how were you able to get your wife to be okay, you know, with uh, that leap of faith and, and with the uncertainty that you had in front of you? It's a good question. And, and as I think back, I'm kind of impressed, more impressed as the years go on with myself and my wife that, that we took that risk because... If you look at the law of averages, you know, most companies don't make it. And at the point in time in which I resigned from my bank over email um, in kind of April of the year I was graduating, and I always joked that that was the most expensive email I've ever had to send because as soon as I resigned, I then was responsible for, for paying the not insignificant tuition fees that, that Stanford were charging me. So, so that, uh, you know, along with many other things, it was a big decision. Um, so... so so yeah, I think in a way um, you get caught up in 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 the entrepreneurship feelings and vibes that are going on at, at Stanford. Everyone's thinking about starting a company, and it probably gives you an outsized perception of success or an outsized uh, kind of predictability of success. But again, 
but it's a, a really good decision that I made in my life to do that. It wasn't easy. My wife is extremely supportive. Um, but yeah, we were leaving something where I was in an expat life with education for my kids paid for and fancy house paid for and a driver and all this kind of stuff, uh, living, living a really, really fun life to give it up for a company that at the time had not raised any money, did not have any customers and had no products. So, so it was a big leap. Um, but sometimes you got to go with your gut and, and I'm glad that I did. So then tell us about the early days of SoFi. So um, obviously you guys met there in school, you come together and, and, and I guess why the four of you? I mean, was there like uh, any particular, you know, reasoning on how the four of you came together, you know, in terms of backgrounds or fit? I mean, why the four of you coming together? It's a good question. I'd like to pretend there was a whole load of science behind it, but I don't know that there was. Uh, there were three of us in the class that I was in. Mike, who, was, who ended up being the CEO, uh, Ian, who ended up uh, effectively being the CTO, uh, and myself. And, and, you know, maybe I'm getting into the weeds. We thought we needed to find someone from the regular two-year MBA program to qualify for this course. So we kind of did uh, interviews um, for, for the, the, you know, the, the younger, uh, slightly less experienced uh, uh, classmates that we had. And, and fortunately, one of them, uh, who was called Jim, joined us but i think they were probably interviewing us as much as we were interviewing them like who are these slightly older dudes and, and, and what, what are they on about so so um we were lucky to get jim um but to come back to your question i'm not sure yeah we, we we got together around this class we wanted to do this class uh we liked each other we thought we had uh, you know complementary skills but um but you know I, it wasn't like there was a beauty parade or something and, and, and it could have been very different. It was, it kind of was just the way it was and, 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 and it worked. Um, but, but yeah, I can't pretend that there was some massive amount of science behind it. So what were the early days like of, uh, of a company like SoFi? What did that look like? It was a blessing and a curse that our product was at the beginning, um, providing student loans. So, so, uh, the, the company morphed into some other areas it evolved, but for, for the very first product, was lending money to students while they're at school. And we started off with Stanford. So the blessing and the curse was that we graduated in the, whatever it was, first week of June of, of 2011. And we needed to get our product up and running before the start of the next academic year, whatever that was, 1st of September. So we had about three months to get it up and running. If we missed it, then everyone, the, you know, the, the students going into that next academic year would have made their decisions, their financing decisions. They would have taken loans elsewhere, and we would have had to wait another year. And, and, and you know, and we didn't have the resources to to do that. So, in looking back, I think actually that was a great thing. That was the blessing. The blessing was that we had a finite amount of time to get this company up and running, and that really gave us focus. We had post-it notes, one for every day of the uh, of the ninety days or so until that that day, uh, with basically deliverables that we needed to achieve. And I think that was good because sometimes what I've seen with other companies that I've worked with or advised that haven't yet launched their product, there's always a temptation to wait a bit longer, make it a bit better, get a bit more, you know, uh, kind of proof points as to whether the market's ready for it. And sometimes you just got to go with it. And sometimes having that forcing factor like we had can, can be a really good thing. And what was like uh, to raise money for a company like SoFi? I guess that for before we we actually address that one, you know, just for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of SoFi? At the beginning, it was raising money from individuals um, so that they could 
invest in a portfolio of loans to current students. So it was kind of that that peer to peer model that that Lending Club and Prosper had had started at the time, and, and we were tying it to a more specific affinity group. Uh, kind of in this case, Stanford alumni basically lending money to current Stanford students. And, and the thesis was that that they understood the borrowers in some way uh, and that the market wasn't um, pricing correctly and we could give the students a better rate, but we could also give a good rate of return to those investors. Um, the business ended up morphing a little bit. We ended up taking institutional money uh, in order to lend um, because it was, frankly, too complicated and difficult and timely and uh, and lengthy to, to kind of get it from individuals, but but that was the original thesis. Um, and then to come back to your question, what was complicated is at the beginning we were raising money on two levels. We were raising money for the company, you know, to pay salaries, to buy computers, to keep the lights on, but we were also raising money to be able to lend, and that's really difficult to do. So any anyone who's in the lending business will know that doing those two things at the same time is difficult because it's chicken and egg. You know, no one will give you the money or very few people will give you the money to lend until they can look at some record of, of uh, delivery and say, well, how do you know if you can lend money? How do, I, how do you know if you're going to get paid back? Yeah, at the same time, you can't prove that until you get the money. So, so without deep pockets yourselves to start with, it's quite hard to convince those, those first few investors. But, but we managed it. We managed to get $2 million from uh, investors to to, uh, to then lend that $2 million to 100 students, um, which was tough to do, but, but we managed to do it during that three-month period. And as you were, uh, you know, perhaps raising money for, you know, for a lending company, as you were saying, what were some of the mistakes, you know, now looking back that, uh, that you think you guys made? Well, I think, I mean, look, everything is easy in hindsight, but I think one of the major mistakes that we made was giving away too much of the company at the beginning. So, so I mentioned the two million that we raised to lend. Alongside that, we raised four million in equity. That that was kind of our we called it our A round. I don't know if seed rounds existed then, but we, we didn't have a seed. We just went straight into A. We were originally trying to raise two, uh, and we were going to give away um, a third of the company uh, for that. Um, and then we had, uh, excuse me, a quarter of the company. And then we ended up raising double that amount because we had the interest. But instead of changing the terms, we gave <laughs> we gave away like fifty percent of the company. So, um, look, looking back, SoFi has been good to me. It's been good to lots of people. It's it's a multi billion dollar public company now. So 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 I'm not complaining. But we did give away quite a lot of the company at the beginning uh, when perhaps we didn't need to. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams 
through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And what about raising a lot of money? You know, what are the pros and cons when you raise, you know, over a billion like uh, you guys did with so far? Yeah. yeah, it took us a few years to get there. But, but you know, within a year of existing, we raised 100 million. And within, uh, I think it was four years of existing, we, we did raise a billion. That, that was SoftBank money. Um, and I, but, you know, I would say the pros and cons, it gives you the opportunity to be ambitious. We could do things that other companies in the space couldn't do. We could throw money at problems and try things. The, the risk, I think, is that you then get sloppy and you know, you're know you doing too many things. You're not concentrating. Uh, you're overhiring in the wrong areas because you can, because you've got the money. So you know, I, I, I often get asked this from companies I, I work with or have worked with. Should we raise more? Should we raise less? And, and I think you, you, you can raise more, but just have an idea what, you, what you're going to do with it and be disciplined enough that once that money's in your bank account, you, you're not going to waste it. Uh, and, that, and that can be hard. I don't, you know, we wasted some of it. We made mistakes, but ultimately we went out hard and we developed a brand, a really respected brand in the industry ahead of other companies that had less money. And I think if you look now, many of those companies aren't around. And uh, some of that is due to the fact that we had more money than they did and we were able to get out there in a bigger way. So obviously here, an absolute rocket ship. You know, I think that uh, even at the time at, uh, at the, the valuation peaked for um, SoFi, I think it was like close to $9 billion, which is uh, really incredible, you know, building a company like this. I guess, why leaving? You know, why in 2017, after pushing this thing from inception for, you know, close to seven years, you decide that to turn the page? It's a good question. And it probably took me six months to kind of go through that thought process myself before actually pulling the trigger and doing it. And, and I think, and I've spoken to other founders who've, who've, who've done similar things, and, and there's some similarities in the stories, but there's always some differences as well. I do think it's a pretty personal decision. For me, um, I really loved the time at SoFi. It was, it was, you know, like a baby to me, um, and I cared for it deeply. But um, I didn't, frankly, I didn't see the, the IPO or the exit happening anytime soon. Uh, you know, and in hindsight, that, 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 that was borne out to be correct. The IPO ended up being in 2021. So what I didn't want to do was kind of hang around just for that and, and slowly go stale. Uh, I wanted to leave at a time where I was fired up, where people thought well of me. And, uh, you know, by that time, we had a very competent management team. It wasn't like, we, had, we were 1,500 people, so so me leaving wasn't going to endanger the company in any way. And, and I wanted to do other things as well, and, and some of it's a cliche about spending more time with your family, but I had kids who, you know, it wasn't like we were working every hour that that, that, that God sent, but but we were working hard. I was working hard, and, and I wanted to do some other things and, and take some time out. So it felt like a good time. The company was in good hands, and um, I certainly didn't want to be going stale. 
and I wanted to go out on a high. So, so I'm pleased that I was able to do that. So in this case, I mean, you uh, took some time off uh, and basically, you know, like between a few stints and a few advisory roles, you know, then you ended up landing on Summer, which is the uh, company that right now you're pushing. And it sounds like it was an intern of SoFi, you know, the one that founded the company and that's how you guys got connected. But I guess before we even get to speak about Summer, I want to talk about the uh, some of the dynamics that you have experienced, you know, while being a board member or or from being an advisor. What do you think, you know, makes a board, you know, effective, you know, when it comes to dynamics? Yeah, I, I've been I've lucky uh, been lucky to be on the board of a few companies, and I've seen obviously the boards at um, at SoFi and at Salary Finance, where I was for a few years, and and then more recently at Summer. And I think ultimately the board should be helping, not hindering. And I think sometimes boards can mean well, but they can ask information. They can ask too many questions, you know, to sound interested. And maybe they are that they are interested, but ultimately it's not really helping the company. So I, I think boards um, should offer advice uh, when solicited, but, but more generally kind of just get out of the way of, of what the uh, of what the CEO and the founding team and, and the management team are trying to do, as long as that's, you know, a sensible strategy. Um, because I think usually the CEO and the management team know more about that business than the board does. Uh, and, and you should, in a perfect situation, respect that they do know more and, and kind of let them get on with it and, and, and ask, how can we help? You know, who can we connect you to? What can we do to... Uh, maybe help with hiring, um, you know, what can we help you connect you to a, a, a PR firm, what, whatever it is, as opposed to just kind of asking questions that, that just take time to respond to. What you don't want is a board meeting that is just a kind of takes three weeks to prepare for and, and isn't really helping anybody, which I have seen once or twice. Now, for you, why did you go with perhaps joining Summer? as opposed to launching another business of your own? Because as the saying goes, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So why going to, with Summer? So um, it's a great question, and it's something that I did think about. I, and look, being being an entrepreneur and, and starting something or being involved with, with starting something is really difficult. Those first couple of years are the most difficult. They're the most risky when you're trying to get product market fit, seeing if what you what your idea has any any relevance whatsoever. So so to some degree, I was taking a bit of a risk out of it, like going with something that's a few years old, um, has got over that first hump. And then the, the bit that I really like is that growth stage. Once you once once there is product market fit, then it's about okay, how do we get this into the hands of as many people as we can? So I think, you know, that to answer your question, that's why I didn't uh, start something again. Uh, this was more tangible. This was there. I could see the opportunity. Um, but yeah, the the the, the re I mean, the backstory is, is is interesting. Summer was started by a guy called Will Seeley, who was my intern at SoFi in the summer of 2016. So I'm now president of the company, but you know, officially I reported to him, um, and we're kind of managing the company together. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 reporting to someone who used to be my intern. So it's a little bit of a <laughs> it's a little bit of an unusual story. But he essentially built what I wanted to build at SoFi, um, but we had too many competing priorities. So I've always kept in touch with him. I've always kept abreast of where the business was. And yeah, it, he was talking to me about being an investor. I invested and I thought, actually, I think I want to join because I really like what's going on here. So that, that was about six months ago. So what's Summer doing? What is the business model of Summer? 
Yeah, Summer has a digital. Uh, basically, at SoFi, um, our main business were, was was refinancing loans for for uh, student loans for individuals. The reality was you needed a pretty good credit score and a pretty good salary to be able to do that. SoFi has, does many other things now, but that was the the core initial business. But what that meant was we helped lots of people. We SoFi helped lots of people in a really big way. Um, but it was probably only 10 to 15% of the general population that had student loans. So really what Summer is doing is addressing the other 85 or 90% of people who have student loans but may not be able to refinance them for, for various reasons. So so we have a digital platform that, that um, redefines their student loan management and it guides them through paying those loans, uh, helps them on getting those loans forgiven uh, and the benefits uh, process to maximize any debt relief. So. What does that mean? Basically, there are 120 federal and state level programs that exist today that offer reduced payments and loan forgiveness uh, to anyone with a student loan. The problem is most people have no idea um, that they exist. They don't know if they qualify. So we're a bit like TurboTax, but for student loans, people give us a few pieces of key information, who they are, where they live, where they work, etc. And critically, what student loans we have, they have. And then we give them a customized recommendation that says you are eligible for forgiveness. Do this. You are, uh, if they work in the public sector, you may be able to get income-driven repayment, a reduced payment. Do this. It's very customized based on who they are. So, with Summer, you guys have raised quite a bit of money already. I mean, twenty million plus. Uh, so, I guess for this, given your experience with raising money before. How did you guys go about raising money, you know, this time around? I mean, what were some of the things that you were looking for and how did you go about getting the right people for the right research? Yeah, without getting too much into the weeds of the business, some was a bit strange in that it's been around about four or five years, but um, student loans until very, very recently, very recently, no one had to pay them back. During COVID, President Trump um, canceled basically student loan payments for uh, what was a temporary period and that temporary period kept getting extended. So for three and a half years, no one in America has had to pay back their student loans. So that was tough for summer during that period because that was their business. So in a way, the business was a little bit on ice for, for a few years um, and, and as such was, was waiting for the time that has just happened where suddenly this market has reopened. People are now having to pay back their loans um, and it's a really great time to, uh, to be investing in, 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 in summer and to be working here. So I've been, you know, I was lucky. I joined at a time where I could see that this uh, return to, to form was happening or, the, or this timeliness was, was just about to, to become a, a factor and that loans, student loans would start to become repayable again. Um, so that's the message to, to, to the investors that, that I've been speaking to over the last few months is, is, is that we're in a brand new market now and people need help um, and, and Summer is, is able to provide that help. And, and the results are great. We, we've saved people over the last few years, more than $1.3 billion uh, by having their loans forgiven, helping them to have their loans forgiven or to reduce the payment. So, so yeah, the pitch basically to investors is there's more to do. There's more people out there uh, and, and we need help to, to get out to, to a much bigger group of people. And what is it like now, you know, that you're able to go into more of the earlier stages and, you know, be able to uh, face with being with limited resources and, and, and especially in this environment? You know, how are you guys, you know, navigating? It's fun. We were, we had our top team together in New York last week, and we were talking about, well, how do we get 
we work with employers. So, so we, we work with employers who offer summer to their employees. So we were discussing how do we get more employers to know what we do and as to why this is important. And we were, you know, just brainstorming ideas about how to get their attention. And it was, it's kind of like on the ground, uh, basic kind of stuff uh, in many levels, not, not always necessarily the most sophisticated marketing uh, techniques, because I think sometimes when you're an early stage company, that's what you need to do. Um, and, and that's what I enjoy. So, so lots of ideas being thrown around. Some of them will work. Some of them won't work. But, but trying them, seeing what, what takes off, seeing what gets an impact, that, that's, that's the stuff that, uh, that, that interests me as opposed to just, you know, knowing what works and cranking it out and ever increasing scale. Um, that, that, you know, to come back to SoFi, that's one of the reasons I, I left because we were, it was getting into a bit more of a, a kind of machine, a big machine. And, and uh, I enjoy the early stage stuff. It's a bit more chaotic. So then now I guess uh, as you're looking back and the incredible experience that you've had in the operating side, let's say you had the opportunity of me putting you into a time machine and you're able to go back in time. And all of a sudden you are right there in Stanford, maybe at one of those recess, you know, uh, between classes with, uh, with your, uh, you know, who became your co-founders with your co-founders, you know, of SoFi. And you're able to give all of you one piece of advice before getting started with that business or with a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, that's a tough one because there's probably more than one. Um, but I think probably that the main one would be to ensure that you as a founding team, check in very regularly uh, in an honest fashion about what everybody's feeling. That's not to say that we didn't do that, but but I've seen uh, other businesses around. Um, if if you're not kind of honest with each other, then things can suddenly move in one direction, and and uh, and stuff can happen. So so um, maintaining close contact, and that's difficult because when when you you know you're racing at 100 miles an hour and everyone's doing stuff. It's not always easy to, to talk everything through, and there simply isn't time. But but having those honest conversations as early as possible, if 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 uh, something's going astray, if you feel like the the strategy is not quite where it should be, or if the execution isn't, you know, don't wait and think, well, maybe I'll bring this up tomorrow because it, the problem uh, is only going to get bigger tomorrow, and you simply don't have time to say just just have a culture where you can bring the stuff up very quickly, very openly. Um, and, and get and, and solve things very quickly. We actually did a lot of that very well, but there's always room for improvement. So for the people that are listening, Dan, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, probably on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, Macklin Dan, I think, is my profile on LinkedIn uh, at Summer. Uh, you can find me there. Um, yeah, that's the best way. Amazing. Well, hey, Dan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. Enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.